These are the confidential counsels which Yahuwah gave to Yeshua HaMashiach. Shabbat Shalom from Under the Dome. I'm here with Michael and Rob. My name is Noel. This is the Diaspora of Yashorel, as you all know. And we are going through Hebrew Revelation. We are on chapters 10 and 11 this week. So let us go ahead and open in prayer. Do I have any volunteers? I guess I should have, uh, I should have asked that before we started. Do we have any volunteers to open us in prayer today? I'd be happy to. Sarah, please go ahead. Most High Heavenly Father, Yahuwah, we come before you on this set-apart day, this beautiful Sabbath that you've created for us in our time to worship you. We come together as family, worshiping you in one accord, in truth and in spirit. Father, let us have ears to hear and a heart to understand the teaching tonight. Help us to have edifying conversation and to encourage and uplift one another. We give you all the praise and all the glory for what you're doing in this family. We love you. And in Yeshua's mighty name, amen. Amen. Thank amen. you, Sarah. Well, it feels really good to be here again for another Sabbath. And I was just telling the group this before we started that I think, and I, I won't just I will speak for myself, but I think I'm probably speaking for most people here that uh, I know that I've had a really good work week if I come up on Sabbath and I'm exhausted. And every single week I'm, I get so exhausted. I'm like, I don't know if I can do, I could, I don't know if I can do another Sabbath, get up here and give a, um, you know, read through this and give another talk. But uh, this is always just so refreshing to get up here and read through scripture. And I love it. And I would feel like a huge part of my week is gutted out if I wasn't doing this now. So we are going to get started. Before we do, I just wanted to quickly announce that we are starting Marco Polo Fellowship Groups here at the Unexpected Cosmology. And if you're not familiar with Marco Polo, it is, um, it is a visual way to keep in contact with a group of individuals. You know, you, it's uh, usually face contact. You know, you go in there, record yourself talking. Uh, we're going to have groups of about 10 people. They're going to be separated by men and women separately and we each group will have a leader and um, it's just I I, I really enjoy Micropole. it's a great way to keep in touch and grow and uh, anyways if you're interested in doing that Hank just dropped that into the general voice chat I'll also put this on our YouTube video the the link where you can go and sign up for this and we're gonna be starting them really soon so uh, please consider being a part of it all right I'm going to hand it over to Rob, and we're going to be reading from Revelation chapter 10. Okay. Then I saw another messenger descending from the heavens, and he was clothed with a cloud, and a bow was over his head, and his appearance was like the sun, and his feet like a flame of fire. And in his hand was an open scroll. And he stepped on the sea with his right foot, and on the dry land with his left. And he cried out with a loud voice, Lion, sorry, like a lion 
roars. And when he had cried out, seven voices spoke with their voices. And after they had spoken with their voices, I wanted to write them. But I heard a voice from the heavens which said to me, Shut them up, and do not write. And the messenger who was standing on the sea and on the land which I had seen lifted up his right hand and his left hand unto the heavens. And he wore, and he swore by the ever-living who created the heavens and what is in it, and the earth and the sea and whatever is in them, that there was no time, but when the seven messengers blow with the shofarat, all these confidential counsels of Yahweh will be completed, just like he made it known to his servants and to his prophets. Then I again heard a voice saying to me, Go and take the open scroll from the hand of the messenger who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the messenger and said to him, Give me the scroll. And he said to me, Take and swallow it, and it will be for you like honey in your mouth, but in your belly it will make you pain. So I took the scroll from the hand of the messenger and swallowed it. And it was like honey in my mouth, but after I ate it, it made me pain in my belly. Then he said to me, You must prophesy again to nations and to peoples and to kings. That is the end of chapter 11, and I pass it over to Michael to start with commentary. Thank you, Rob. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Um, we are going through Confidential Councils 10 and 11. Um, I do not have much on 10, so this will be quick for me. And then, yeah, so let's get going. So I'm going to start on number four. I'm going to read both. Uh, it says, And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices... I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up these things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And in the Hebrew it says, And after they had spoken with their voices, I wanted to write them, but I heard a voice from the heavens which said, Shut them up and do not write. So I'm going to start off with a cross-reference. So Revelation and Daniel is just so in sync. Um, Daniel 12 um, says, but as for you, Daniel, keep these words secret and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will roam about and knowledge will increase. Um, I wanted to point out that uh, the words of the seven thunders were the only portion of his vision that John was permitted to reveal. I thought that was interesting. We, we should probably do more research on the seven thunders and what that means. Um, next thing is uh, five and six. I'm going to read together. Um, and the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that lifted forever and ever. He created heaven and the things that are therein and the earth and the things that are therein are and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. And I'm going to read the Hebrew. It's a little bit quicker. And the messenger who was standing on the sea and on the land, which I had seen, lifted up his right hand and his left hand unto the heaven. And he swore by the ever-living, who created the heavens and what is in it, and the earth and the sea and whatever is in them. And there, and there was no time. So, <clears throat> back to the Greek, where it says, And the sea and the things which are therein are omitted by the Codex Sinaiticus, and also are missing from the Hebrew too. So we're just trying to, we're, we're going through the text here, doing the, the things that are missing. Um, I thought it was interesting that it's 
it's missing from the Codex Sinaiticus and also from the Hebrew. So, and the sea and the things which are therein are omitted. Um, I also want to talk about lifting up his hand. So, we, we've been talking a lot about the heavenly courts. And so, the Greek verb that appears often in this te technical sense of raising the hand is to take an oath or a solemn vow. That, you know, that's a court system when you're taking an oath. Um, I want to read two cross-references. Um, Psalms 146.6. Who made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything that is in them? Who keeps faith forever? And then Daniel again, Daniel 12.7. And I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, as he raised his right hand and his left towards heaven. That's an exact quote of Revelation. And swore by him who lives forever, that it will be for a time, times, and half a times. We'll get to that probably next chapter. And as soon as they finish smashing, the power of the holy people, all these fence, events will be completed. Um, I'm going to split it up here, but before I hand it to Noah, it mentions no time. What does that mean? And I know a lot of translations say delay in time. That might fit better, but I'm not sure. Um, what do you guys think? It, it literally says no time left. Um, I have two left, but I'll hand it off to Noah for his commentary. Yeah, I mean, speaking about the, the no time left, it also says down in verse 7 that uh, in, both, in both translations, it, it's, it gives the same message, but I'll read it from the Hebrew. But when the seven messengers blow with the, the shofars, all these confidential counsels of Yahuwah will be completed. So he's talking about... Uh, the confidential counsels, the context of this book will be completed, but then it adds, just like he made it known to his servants and to his prophets. So there seems to be a tie-in here to what he's saying, that when this book is fulfilled, then all those things the prophets were telling you about and his servants, those will be fulfilled too, which is a really exciting thought. Um, I mean, to, to if, if, if anyone were to say that we we have we are beyond the mile marker of revelation then we are beyond the prophecy spoken spoken of these prophets if i'm reading this right so um just something to point out there now there's many people have commented on and in fact i have too that revelation is very similar to enoch in fact the book of Revelation feels like a, um, it's almost like a book in left field. It feels very strange to the rest of scripture. By that, I mean canon, right? We all know the 66 canon. But then when you discover the book of Revelation, uh, I'm sorry, the book of Enoch and some of these other books as well, even Jubilees and some others, you're like, wow, there's a lot of really similar passages, a lot of things that um, connect and make sense. Well, a huge difference, though, with Revelation is that unlike Enoch, he never brings up names. He never talks about the names of angels. You know, you read Enoch and he's going to go, and this angel's name is this and that. And, you know, those four guys, those are their names over there. And you read a lot of Enochian literature and you get these angel names. Again, not in Revelation. Now, there's this angel that shows up here and he's got a, he's clothed with a cloud and a rainbow is over his head. He's got one foot um, in the ocean, one on the land. I'm taking it. I mean, if you guys have ever stood on, if you've ever tried to put one foot into the ocean and one foot onto the land before, you know, you, you're right there with the tide and the tide's washing over you. I'm taking it that this is a big, massive angel. 
Now, if you've been following along some of the books I've been going through, like the, the Seven Firmaments of Heaven, some of these angels are ginormous, huge. Uh, so I was trying to kind of track down the identity of this angel. And I'm not saying that I did, but here's my report. Here's, here's what I'm thinking. I believe that this angel is somehow identified with the sun. There are, and it's kind of interesting because um, there, there's this idea that there's a cloud and a rainbow, right? So there's light coming from the sky. Um, there's something about the, um, there's a connection between clouds, rain, water, lights, and the promise of never uh, destroying the world with the flood again. Something about this angel, he is so powerful that he has a rainbow, literally a rainbow around his head, probably to remind himself that he is not does is not given the authority to destroy the world with the flood. There's not a lot of rainbows that show up in scripture. I did a, a check on this within canon. You've got Revelation chapter four, verse three, Ezekiel chapter one, verse twenty-eight. I'll go ahead and write this in just to see what we can come up here with here. Again, when I do these studies earlier in the week, I'm a um, I often forget what all these say. And the appearance of a rainbow and a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Okay, so it's talking about the throne of Yahuwah. So here we see in Ezekiel, there's a, th uh, a rainbow around the throne of Yah. We also see it, of course, in Genesis 9.16. You all know that passage. It's where Yahuwah promises never to destroy the world again by water, and that's the sign of the rainbow. And then it also appears in the Targum. I saw one passage in Numbers 22.28. I'm not going to quote from it, but it's um, it's kind of interesting. It, according to Numbers 22:28, the rainbow was created after the world. It was not a pre-creation event. It was something that Yah created after the world. Anyways, let me let me quote here from Second Enoch chapter 12. I will go ahead and copy and paste this into the room so you can all see it. And this is what it says. It's on the very marvelous elements of the sun. And I looked and I and saw other flying elements of the sun whose names are phoenixes and uh, chocotry. Now, if you remember, when we went through the seven firmaments of heaven, I, I quoted from Third Baruch where it talked about the phoenixes and the sun. They were marvelous and wonderful with feet and tails in the form of a lion. And they had a crocodile's head, which is interesting. Their appearance is um, um, ampurpled like the rainbow. So here it's describing these phoenix creatures like a rainbow. Their size is 900 measures, which I take to be pretty big. Their wings are like those of angels. Each has 12, and they attend in company the sun, bearing heat and dew, as it is ordered them from Elohim. So we see that there's like, a, again, there's heat, there's, there's moisture creating this rainbow. Thus the sun revolves and goes and rises under the heaven, and its course goes under the earth with the light of its rays in, um, incessantly. And then I'll go ahead and copy and paste a very large section. This comes from 3rd Baruch, chapter, chapter 6 through 8. Um, oh, wow. It's, it's a little bit too much to post. It won't let me, uh, obviously. All right. Well, that's okay. But if you guys were there for my study on the seven firmaments, just to kind of give a recap, Baruch sees the sun going by, uh, being pulled on a chariot with all these angels pulling it, and there's this phoenix there that he notices. And again, whatever this, this, I am under the, I kind of feel like this angel showing up 
is perhaps that phoenix. It's somehow identified with the sun. And so the very fact that this angel is stepping on the, the earth, that's a big deal. Like, like this, this guy is not showing up to, um, you know, for, for tea time. And again, I think that the rainbow there is important as a reminder of what not to do. But uh, some stuff is about to go down. Um, that's all I have on that. And back to you, Rob. I like that uh, the Phoenix tie-in on that. That's that's a good one. I that's a good one to bring out. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take my angle on the mighty angel that stood upon the water and the land. What I did with that was I've seen comparisons of this this angel to Yeshua, and so I wanted to see if there was a validity. Uh, in that, and I could only find uh, four out of the nine references that was similar to descriptions of Yeshua, and I, I will drop a slide in on that so everyone can see. And so here we see that he's clothed with the sun, with a cloud, and we read in Revelation 1-7 that he comes with clouds. And then in number, th and then next one is a bow was over his head. And we know that there's a bow over the throne. We've read that in uh, Revelation 4-3, but no mention over, the, over anyone's head. Now we do recall reading about the, the four the four um, angels, or the the ones with the four faces, I should say, uh, where they were pictured with thrones above their heads. So you have this imagery of whether it, it was literal or a um, hologram or whatever you want to call it, but there was an image of the throne above their heads. And here we have this angel with a bow over his head, if that is in some likeness. Number three, appearance was like the sun, and we, we, we read in uh, chapter 116, the appearance shone like the sun when describing Yeshua. And then four, the feet of this was like a flame of fire, and we see that uh, Yeshua's feet was described like copper, uh, 115. And then we talk about has this open scroll and we read about the scroll of life in Revelation 3, 4 to 5, but no tie-in with, this, with um, a, this specific angel or Yeshua, I should say. So that's kind of open. And then number six, he stepped on the sea with his right foot and on the on dry land with his left. And a comparison, we see Yahuwah made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all things in them, the one guarding truth on, into the eons. In Psalms 146.6. So I, I could not find any reference of someone stepping in both of these in any um, literature that I could find other than Yahuwah uh, making everything. And he's the one who guards the truth into the eons. So that's the only reference I could find regarding that tie-in. Seven was uh, cried out with a loud voice like uh, lion roars. And we see in Revelation 1.15, his voice like the noise of a great waters. And the eighth point is, he lifted up his right hand and his left hand unto heavens. And then we'll read next to that he swears. 
Well, here in, in the correlation is, Yahuwah shall lift into the heaven my hand, and I shall swear by an oath by my right hand, and I will say, I live into the eon. This is in Deuteronomy 32, 40. And then that ties in with number nine. Uh, this angel swore by the ever-living who created the heavens and what is in it, and the earth and the sea, and whatever is in them, that there was no time. So we see Yahuwah swore by an oath according to his right hand in Isaiah 62.8. So th these actions being done by this, this particular angel is swearing with the right hand as we see this is being done uh, throughout the, the Torah and the Tanakh that uh, this gesture you, you swear and then there's also the warnings of what not to swear on, especially the name. But uh, here, this, this is being sworn by, by the ever-living. So this is a serious oath being taken uh, and being stated here. So that's kind of, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to go too much further on that, but I just wanted to show the differences of how some parts of this could resemble the, the descriptions of Yeshua, but others they were not. So that, as, as we see all the times is the agency of Yah, Yahweh or Yahuwah, is that he uses the spiritual beings, whether they're specific angels, etc., to carry out his will and his words. So with that, I, I wanted to follow up in regarding the seven voices. Um, I'm going to drop something in on that too. Now the seven voices, <clears throat> or seven thunders, if you look up the, the word for thunders, I believe it is, it, it, every time it's, it's, it, it's referencing voices. And so these voices, uh, it, it says the seven voices spoke with their voices. So I think that's interesting. And I heard a voice from heavens which said to me, shut them up and do not write them. And another place where you could find seven voices of, of Yah would be in Psalms 29. And it references the, the voice of, of, of Yahvah that... Uh, uh, well, I'll read them. There's seven of these. The voice of Yahweh is over the waters. The L of the steam thunders. Yahweh is over many waters. The voice of Yahweh is with power. The voice of Yahuwah is greatness, is with greatness. The voice of Yahweh is breaking the cedars. Yahweh is breaking the cedars of Lebanon in pieces. The voice of Yahweh cuts through the flames of fire. The voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness. Yahweh shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. And the voice of Yahweh makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everyone says, esteem. Yahweh sat enthroned at the flood, and Yahweh sits as sovereign forever. Yahweh gives strength to his people, and Yahweh blesses his people with peace. So we see the great power in just the voice of Yahweh over the waters. Uh, it's great. It's greatness. It, it, it just breaks trees. I mean, crushes them and, 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 and cuts through fire and shakes the wilderness. Uh, the forest bare, strips the trees bare. So it, it is a powerful uh, frequency, if you will, from the voice of, of Yah. And we see that these voices, and, and we also remember 
that on the the Mount of Congregation, when Moshe was on the mountain and or or at the mountain, and Yah was speaking to the peoples, and the people were like, "No, no, we we can't stand this. We can't hear his voice because it was so powerful." So just imagine uh, reading Psalms twenty nine, and then what they had experienced with with Yah speaking. And the fear and how they did not want him, did not want to hear him continue. So uh, that's what I wanted to share on the voices. And then I had, I, I did have another one that I, 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 I could not finish. And I really wanted to touch on the temple, uh, the set apart city and the temple of 42, you know, being tread down for 42 months. I had multiple verses for this that I was going to speak to kind of to give another viewer angle that this, this set apart city uh, may have been um, as we read this with in, in the next chapter uh, that there is a, uh, well, I'll go into the next chapter, but I had some information on it and I lost all the scripture notes that I had on this. So I'm really bummed. And I guess it's Yah's will for me not to talk about that right now, but um, I, I just wanted to mention that I did have something for it, but I, I, it, 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 it went away. So that was all I had for uh, chapter 10. So I'll pass it on over to you, Michael. All right. Thank you. Um, I only have two left on 10. I have a lot on 11, so I'll make this quick. Um, number nine. Um, and I went unto the angel and said unto him, give me the little book. And he said unto me, take it and eat it up. And it shall be like thy belly bitter but it shall be on thy mouth sweet as honey. And in the Hebrew, so I went to the messenger and said to him, give me the scroll. And he said to me, take and swallow it, and it will be for you like honey in your mouth, but in your belly it will make you pain. Um, you know, this is very similar to Ezekiel. So Ezekiel 3, so I opened my mouth, and he fed me this scroll. And he said to me, son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll, which I am giving you. Then I ate it, and there was the sweetest honey in my mouth. And then Psalms 119, everybody's favorite chapter, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste? Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And then finally, uh, number 11. Let's see. Then he said to me, you must prophesy again to nations and to peoples and to kings. And uh, Jeremiah 25, 30. Therefore, you shall prophesy against them all these words. And you shall say to them, Yahuwah will roar from on high and raise his voice from his holy dwelling. He will roar forcefully against his fold. He will shout like those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. That's all I got for 10. I'm um, looking forward to Revelation 11, but I'll hand it off to Noah. Michael, you had, you had while well, Rob was talking about this identity of this messenger being Yahusha, you were dropping some verses in there. It looked like they were coming from 2nd Ezra. Do you have any further commentary on those did you want to go over those i was actually just quoting what lee put we put second ezra speaks of yeshua coming out of the sea so i was just finding them and putting them in there for context um, yeah so i'll just read those then um I, I i'm assuming this is all come from second ezra chapter 13 so i see verse 5 25 26 and 52 i'll go ahead and read uh go over these so verse 5 says and after this i beheld and lo there was gathered together a multitude of men out of number from the four winds of the heaven to subdue the man that came out of the sea. Well, that, that's interesting. So we, we, see, we see multiple things in the book of Revelation 
uh, well, really only one thing coming out of the sea, uh, which I think we're going to see in the the next, a couple things, I guess, coming out of the sea. In the next chapter, we'll see something coming out of the deep, who is clearly not Yahusha. But the question is, I guess, does this angel here come from uh, out of the sea? It says he's descending from the heavens and that he has one foot. Uh, let's see, how does it read it exactly? Then I saw another messenger descending from the heavens, so he's not coming from out of the sea, just to be clear. And he was clothed with a cloud, and a bow was over his head, and his appearance was like the sun, and his feet like a flame of fire. Uh, let's see, what is it? Um, oh, here, it's verse 5. It says, And the messenger who was standing on the sea and on the land. Okay, so he's standing on both. Anyways, moving on. Verse 25. This is the meaning of the vision. Whereas thou sawest a man coming up from the midst of the sea, the same as he whom Elohim of the highest hath kept a great season, which by his own self shall deliver his creature, and he shall order them that are left behind. Ezra, second Ezra has such interesting wording over and over again. Then said I, O um, Adonai, or perhaps O Yahuwah, that beareth rule, show me this. Wherefore have I seen the man coming up from the midst of the sea? Or he's saying, Wherefore have I seen the man coming up from the midst of the sea? And he said unto me, Like as thou canst neither seek out nor know the things that are in the deep of the sea, even so can no man upon earth see my son or those that be with him, but in the daytime. All right, so that's for everyone's consideration. I did want to go back quickly and talk about. Um, a little bit more on, I kind of, I wasn't able to drop it in there and I, um, so I kind of moved on, but I'll just read quickly from third Baruch chapter six. And again, I, I, I'm completely open to either. If this is Yahusha coming, um, standing in the sea, then so be it. it. It seems a little strange to me just because it doesn't identify him. And I would think that, that John would identify him to some degree or make it more known, but then again, maybe not. I don't know. So we can make that case. So anyways, it, Baruch sees this. Um, let me just, I'll read the beginning. And he took me and led me where the sun goes forth. The context here is it's in the third heaven. And he showed me a chariot and under which burnt a fire. And in the chariot was sitting a man wearing a crown of fire. And the chariot was drawn by 40 angels. All right. Now this is what I want you to pay attention to here. And behold, a bird circling before the sun about nine cubits away. Now, this bird is described, depending, when you look this bird up, it, it, some describe it, describe it as a seraphim, uh, being a serpentine creature, which is interesting. And I said to the angel, what is this bird? And he said to me, this is the guardian of the earth. And I said, Adonai, how is he the guardian of the earth? Teach me. And the angel said to me, this bird flies along the side of the sun and expanding his wings receives its fiery rays. For if he were not receiving them, the human race would not be preserved nor any other living creature. So I'm putting that out there for your consideration too. I'm not saying this is the same angel, but I, I kind of suspect it might be or the closest that I've seen that describes it. And it's kind of interesting because uh, uh, this angel, according to Third Baruch, uh, is preserves the earth that no nobody would live without this angel. So it's interesting that you do see a rainbow around his head. Um, now, this is probably the shortest discussion ever because I think we're all done. Michael, Rob, and I. It was only eleven verses. Um, 
So with that, I'm going to go ahead and open up and roundtable this. Does anyone have any thoughts or observations on this chapter? You know I do. Go for it. Okay, so um, I'll start with the... Um, you just mentioned that you are you were a bit surprised that if it is Yeshua, how come John wasn't more uh, um, upfront about it? Correct. So in yeah, so in verse four, if you read it in Hebrew, basically John wanted to be very upfront about what he saw. But then a, a, a voice came from heaven and told him to keep everything mysterious and not write about it. The, the word that is used, Satam, is like um, to keep it um, completely like uh, unresolved, like unsolved mystery. So that, that's the word, like, like unresolved, do not, do not expose it. Okay? Um, so... That kind of like jumped at me when you were wondering about about it. Um, the second comment that I had was, um, uh, Rob, in your um, first slide. Um, I don't know if you want to drop that slide again. It, it's, it's really beautiful, by the way. Um, there is one point, point six, where you talked about stepped on the sea with his right foot and on the dry land with his left. That immediately brought me imagery from um, this passage um, in Zechariah. Um, and in that day, his feet shall stand upon the Mount of Olive, Olives, which faces Yerushalayim on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. From east to west, a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall move towards the north, and half of it toward the south. Um, and then it goes to, one moment I'm jumping, and then on verse 8 it says, And in that day it shall be that living waters flow from Yerushalayim, half of them toward the eastern sea, and half of them towards the western sea in summer as well as in winter. So that all imagery of Messiah in um, Zechariah reminded me of this verse um, um, in, this, uh, in chapter 10. So th those were my thoughts. It's, inter it's interesting that in the confidential councils of Yahuwah that... Um, yeah, that John sees something that I guess is still confidential that he's not to give us. Does it, I wanted, okay. go, ahead, go ahead, Michael. I just wanted to read uh, the, I don't think you read the other parts of Yeshua coming out of the sea. I just wanted to read those real quick. Um, so the same chapter, 25 and 26, and then 51 and 52. Um, this is the meaning of the vision, whereas thou sawest a man coming up from the midst of the sea, the same as he whom God the highest hath kept a great season, which by his own self shall deliver his creature, and he shall order them that are left behind. And then 51 and 52, then said, O Lord, that bearest rule, shew me this. Wherefore I seen the man coming up from the midst of the sea. And he said unto me, Like as thou canst neither seek out nor know the things that are in the deep of the sea. 
Even so, can no man upon the earth see my son or those that be with him, but in the day of the, in the daytime? I just want to add two things. Um, <clears throat> I mentioned this before, but there's, and it might help Lee, there's something to the sea. And I've mentioned this before. It's like during the first, you know, ruling during the flood that all the fish in the sea didn't die they just rose like they there was just more water in their tank they rose they were protected cursed was the ground the ground was cursed that was the curse and but the sea nothing happened right and then the next judgment's fire you know the 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 sea the waters are going to be fine eventually the sea is going to be thrown into the lake of fire and be extinguished but there's something about the sea that's protected and the sun is coming from the sea and I also, I do think the deep and the sea, that's, in my opinion, that's where Sheol is. Um, it's, it's under this, the, the sea. Um, I don't know what you guys thought about that, but I just wanted to add those two things. I'm leaning more and more in that direction as I start to read more texts and such, and getting even, even into the Leviathan um, arguments, yeah, there's something about Sheol being in the deep, in, under the sea, and I would concur with that. Yeah, and, and think of the power of the uh, living waters and how how we know, obviously, the sea is just full of life. So it's just in itself probably one also one huge, massive um, uh, organism or complex organism, so to speak, uh, similar to like the earth and the soil on the earth in that sense, but the ocean is so much larger. So, yeah, that's interesting. And also remember that a couple of weeks ago when we read uh, chapter 9, uh, verse uh, 13, um, he was talking about the four uh, watcher, I, I'm guessing watcher angels that were uh, bound uh, in the Great Sea. So remember we talked about it that maybe that's where um, Sheol is. Yeah, it's a good point because you had them that were under the sea, and now we, we have this this yeah. particular angel coming out from the sea. So there's a tie in there that I think should be explored. Also, just to go back to what Michael was saying, that I don't know if, if everyone picked up on how profound some of that was with the, the judgment of the land and the sea. And everything that I've read in the Bible, the Aramaic Targum, extra biblical books, and so on and so forth, there is a a huge emphasis on the fact that the sea and the land are two separate, um, I guess, ecosystems, organisms, uh, entities even, um, that the earth is appears to be feminine. And uh, we, we see passages where like the earth will swallow people up or refuse to, you know, cast them back out. There's a really interesting discussion almost that goes on between the earth and the sea and the Aramaic Targum and Exodus. Where the, um, the when the the Egyptians are pursuing after the uh, the Israelites, and I, I believe in the Targum, it gives it, it gives a description that the the water being separated, it's like it's not just this narrow channel like they show in Hollywood movies. It's so far apart that you know if you were walking in the center, you might not see the wall of water. That's how far apart it was. But there's this argument that the the sea doesn't want to consume the egyptians and the earth doesn't really want to swallow them because neither one of them want to be judged for it and that's a that's a really interesting thing that happens and so then of course you go a little further and you read in the enochian literature how the 
the water above is masculine, the water below is feminine, and so there's a there's a lot to this. And um, so yeah, that's that. I thought that was really fascinating, Michael, about the uh, about the fact that if if this is Yahusha, um, and everyone can make up their mind on that, but that he would be, I guess, coming from the sea. That that's that's really interesting. And, and I wanted to bring up that the you know the powers that be, they're all about maritime law. You know, the Illuminati, they're the ones who control everything, and they have the currency and the banks and the SWIFT system. Everything's maritime law. Why? It's because I think they, they're onto something and they know. They know about that. Yeah, there's a whole separate uh, governing system over the waters, you're right. That, is, that would be correct. Also, one other observation I did want to point out here is that there is a, a voice coming from heaven, which appears to be different than the thunders. Um, it's not coming from the the messenger or the angel with the foot on the, the sea and the land. There's the seven thunders, and then there's the voice that commands what uh, what not to write. And I, I, I guess I'm not sitting in front of the Hebrew, but I, I highly suspect that that's the Ruach HaKadosh speaking. And I've pointed out in the Odes of Solomon that the Odes of Solomon identifies the voice Later on, we're going to read in a few chapters when it when the voice comes from heaven says, "Come out of her, my people." That that is actually the Ruach Hakodesh speaking to her children. So I think mean, that just it does. I don't know if that really adds anything to the chapter. It's just a little side note. Yeah, I'm keeping track of each time the Ruach speaks, and I know she was speaking in the beginning of the seven of the uh, church. You know, the seven assemblies. So yeah, I like what Lee posted. Yeah, he said uh, their maritime laws on borrowed time, and that's it's like a it's like a false protection. I agree with that. Obviously, at the end, they they can't escape it, but for the time being, Andy had a comment. Hi everyone. Hi. <laughs> Sorry, I kind of jumped there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just, I just got some observations or questions. Not not sure which. Uh, so, in regards to the seven voices. I've heard this about the, the multiple voices speaking. Could that be that uh, the angels of Yah, they're actually full of the spirit of, uh, of Yah? And because we know that uh, Yah has seven uh, spirits, uh, does that mean that the angels, when they speak, they speak through Yah, they're actually the seven uh, spirits of Yah speak th uh, through them? Uh, do all the angels feel, speak with multiple voices, or do they have their own voices, but whenever they transfer a message from Yah, they kind of uh, speak in multiple voices? Yeah, I, I'll speak to the seven uh, voices piece. I think that that could very well be the seven spirits that stand before the throne of Yah. Could be uh, Yah speaking through them or using them to speak. and and doing what we read doing. So I think that is a good possibility too. Now, as far as the angels, in my opinion, I don't know. I, every time we see interactions with angels, it seems to be pretty uh, normal um, in the sense of the description. No one seems to be uh, uh, describing this type of similar scenario when, when they are engaged with an angel. So I, I'm unaware of that. But if anyone else has more to add, please do. Well, I think, unless if somebody else has something more to add, I think we should move on to the next chapter.
I've got something, oh. just a second thought. Um, in regards to the size, uh, we know that uh, El made uh, Adam and Eve uh, on his image, make Adam on his image. And as far I've come to understand that Adam was very big in size. So does that mean that the actual size of El and also the angels is also big as Yaz? Is that the reason that possibly why the uh, the Watchers also bore giants? Because we know that the Watchers, most probably, um, they had a lot bigger statues uh, from the, when they descended from their angelic form. And they kind of uh, went uh, to the earthly form. Because from my understanding, I can't remember where I read that before, but uh, the Watchers, they were kind of... Um, it was mentioned in one of the other uh, uh, chats that um, they kind of they were mocking Adam on how he felt to his state, and then they made a kind of uh, a covenant with Yah to, uh, you know, um, to 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 move to to come to uh, to come to Earth. Uh, but obviously, they sinned afterwards. Uh, is that the reason? I mean, do you think there's some sort of uh, uh, validity to that? I do think that there's validity validity to Adam being of great stature and also Yahusha being of great stature. Um, the thing is, though, is that if Adam were the same size as the angels, and that's how we explain the giants, then I would imagine that Adam would have giant children as well. So there's there's something else going on that the Watchers were taking on human wives and having giants with them. Keep it, so keep in mind, right? So if, if Adam is a representative of these giant angels, he's having giant children, then I would think that the wives would be just as big as the angels. But you see what I'm saying? Hopefully that's not too confusing. So I do oh, think... That, it makes sense. It makes sense. I do think something else is going on. But uh, it, I've seen a few passages. One comes from the Gospel of Bartholomew, where Adam was of great stature. Um, and I... I, I I can't remember where else I get the suspicion that that Yahusha is as well. And I've pointed out that when we're looking at the these mat, these buildings all over the world, and we see these giant doors and things like that. Um, I, I do wonder if it, it wasn't giants as we think of giants necessarily, but that there were some of the resurrected saints uh, may have been larger than others. There may have been some very very large ones. I think that that's a distinct possibility. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. Yeah. Or also, we could have just been bred to be smaller and weaker, sort of like, you know, Chihuahuas and Cane Corsos are all dogs, but uh, there's a big difference between a teacup Chihuahua and a Cane Corso. Yeah, and are we also talking just about size? Uh, well, what do you mean, Mike? Well, stature. It could mean like um importance well definitely i mean we could talk about glorified bodies all sorts of stuff i'd have to ref uh refer back to bartholomew where he had the observation that one was uh uh i, I was taking it to mean larger than the others but it it could just mean more glorified but um yeah i i, I feel like um um adam may have been larger than the others so but it could be either. Well, with that, let's go ahead and move on to Revelation chapter 11. I'll be handing this over to Mike in just a second. And I just want to 
point out here to everybody that, and you guys should know this by now, it should be a no-duh, that I'm just a guy reading this along with you guys and trying to figure it out. And, you know, the more I read in Scripture, the more books I read, the more texts I read, the the more, some some ways, it you know, this it, it makes more and more sense to me. You know, all the pieces are connecting more and more. But in the same regard, or I guess on the flip of that coin, it, the more I realize how much I don't know. And, you know, going through the book of Revelation is one of those things where sometimes I think Michael feels the same way. I think Rob does too. Sometimes I just like throw up my hands and be like, I, I don't know, guys. Like, I, I don't, I don't have all the answers. Um, I'm just trying to figure this out just like you guys. And so with that, Michael, would you like to take over and start reading? Yes, sir. Uh, that's how I felt in chapter 10. I had no idea what it was. <laughs> um, so Confidential Councils, chapter 11. Then a reed like a rod was given to me, and he said, Stand up and measure the temple of Yahweh and his altar and those who worship in it. But cast out the inner temple and do not measure it. For it is given to the nations, and they will tread down the set-apart city 42 months. And I will give my two witnesses, and they will prophesy a thousand days clothed in sackcloth. And these are the two olive trees and the two torches standing before the Elohim of the earth. And if one wants to do them evil, fire comes and burns them. And they have authority to shut down heaven so that the rain does not come on the earth in the days of their prophesying. And over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with plagues at any time that they want. And after it, they have completed their testimony. The animal which comes from the deep will make war with them and will overcome them and kill them. And their corpses will be thrown on the plains of the set-apart city, which is called Saddam and Mitzrayim, because of Adon was crucified there. And some of the nations and of the tribes will see their corpses three and a half days, and they will not bury them. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice about them and will send one another gifts. For these prophets cause much suffering to those who dwell on the earth. And after three and a half days, they stood up and stepped on their feet. And fear and great terror fell on those who saw them. And they heard a voice saying to them, Come up. Then they went up into the heavens in a cloud, and their haters saw them. And in that hour there was an earthquake, and a tenth part of the city fell, and seven thousand of the sons of man died. And the others were terrified and gave praise to the Elohim of the heavens. Look, the second pain has passed, and the third is coming. Then the seventh messenger blew, and there were many voices in the heavens, which said, The rich ones of the world, all of them came after our Lord Yeshua, and he will reign everlasting until everlasting. And the twenty-four elders who sat on their thrones before Yahuwah fell on their faces and prayed to Yahuwah, and said, We give praise to the Adonai Savaot, who was and is and will be. When the nations were filled with anger and wrath, your anger came. Also the time to judge the dead ones, and to give wages to your servants, the prophets, and to the set-apart ones, and to those who fear you, the small ones and the great ones, and to destroy those who destroyed the earth. And Yahuwah's house of prayer was opened in the heavens, and the ark of the tables of the covenant was seen in the house of prayer. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings and an earthquake and great hail. We'll hand it off to Noel for commentary. What we have just read with the two witnesses is the study that led me to Torah. This happened back in 2018 in the summertime. And I was very good friends with Will Goodrich of The Truth is Stranger Than Fiction, if anyone knows that YouTube channel. And he and I were talking on the phone with one of his buddies, and we were just passing notes on this idea that 
of these two witnesses not being actual people, but being uh, the two houses of Judah or Yehuda and Yasharel. And it was phenomenal to come to this idea of going through scripture. And I don't need to do a whole Bible study on this tonight because that might be a little distracting from this overall passage, but on the idea of, of divorce and how uh, Yahuwah truly did divorce Israel. Uh, we see that in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, we, we see the, the laws in Torah of what is to happen with an adulterous woman in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, meaning if a man divorces his wife and his woman and she goes whoring after other um, uh, or uh, other men that he can't he can't take her back, and the same applies, of course, spiritually. And we you don't know, see other things like in Ezekiel chapter ten when the glory the Shekinah glory departed from the temple, and you actually see Yahuwah writing Israel bill of divorce, and to see how um, all this comes together, how Yahusha shows up and he's coming for the lost sheep of Israel, and uh, this prophecy that. Uh, Yahuwah, uh, uh, Judah and Israel would be gathered together into one sheepfold. And when I saw that, I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm Israel. That's me. That's my story. That is actually what brought me to Torah. Now, what's in, I bring this up because um, when, when you come into Camp Torah, you, you, it's very common to throw out the two witnesses as actual people. And to say, no, it's just it's Israel and Judah. They're, they're the two. You know, we are the two witnesses. That's the general idea. Now, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, we see here the two olive trees, right? It's, it's right there. Um, we learn about the two olive trees in uh, Zechariah chapter 4. And, you know, what, what it's pointing to. Uh, you, you could see, you know, the, the, even, the, even Paul talks about in Romans about the wild, uh, the wild tree, right? That you're, you know, and you're grafted back in. And uh, don't worry, Michael. I'm not gonna. T I'm not gonna take it all. You you can cover all that. What I what I really wanted to focus on, though, is the fact that uh, I've actually kind of gone back to this idea that it is actually really physically talking about two people here, uh, Elijah and Enoch. And when you see that, now keep in mind, there's a one of the big Differences here between the Greek and the Hebrew. Well, let's see if I can if I can find it. Oh, so the Greek it says this in verse five. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. Well, it doesn't actually say that here. It says, and if one wants to do them evil, fire consumes and burns them. Now the fire might come out of their mouth. It might come from heaven. I don't know. But the reason I bring this up is that. This passage in the Greek is often taken as a metaphor, and I don't have a problem with that. Maybe it really is that it's metaphorical for the. It, it, you can do all the cross referencing to in Scripture where, uh, you know, the the word of 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 Yah is like fire, right? And so when we speak Scripture to someone, they can come at us and come at us and come at us, and we throw Scripture back at them, and they're like consumed by it, right? That's the picture being given. But we see other things here that seems to be very literal that they're doing. So I take it that when people seek to do them evil, they're burned by fire. We see in the next verse, they have authority to shut the heavens so that it rains not. Um, they have. Uh, do we have that ability? 
You know, I, I guess you can cross-reference in scripture what that means metaphorically. But then um, we see here, and over the water is to turn them into blood. That's something that Moses did. I've never turned water into blood. Um, and they have the ability, to, the authority to smite the earth with plagues at any time that they want. I don't know about you, but I, I maybe I do have that authority. I don't know. I, I don't see that in scripture where Yah has given me the authority to say, Noel, if you want to smite the earth with a plague, you can do it. So I'm, I'm coming at this here that while it is true that it might be uh, Judah and Israel, I am reverting back to my old position that these are actual people. So I'm going to quote, and well, let me, let me give you a few here. The first one comes from Lamentations chapter 4 in the Targum. If you were a part of my 7,000-year timeline deception study, I did quote from this. And it says this, After this, your iniquity will be finished, O congregation of Zion. And you will be freed by the hands of the King Mashiach, all right, Yahusha, and Eliyahu, the high priest, and Yahuwah will no longer exile you. And at that time, I will punish your iniquities, wicked Rome, built in Italy, and filled with crowds of Edomites. So this goes back into my study a couple weeks ago on, on the Edomites in Rome. And the Persians will come and oppress you and destroy you because your sins have been made known before Yahuwah, which is interesting because the Persians had a huge part in the destruction of Rome. So it seems to be here, Lamentations is saying that Elijah, the prophet, would be um, part of this prophecy of bringing in the congregation of Zion, meaning both, both uh, sheep uh, folds into one, into one flock, Judah and Isaiah. We see this here in Exodus chapter 6, verse 18. And the sons of Kehath, Amram, and Jitzar, and Hebron, and Uziel, and the years of the life of Kehath the saint, 133 years, he lived to see Phinehas, who is Elijah the great priest, who is to be sent to the captivity, captivity of Israel at the end of the days. Now, John the Baptist, I don't know if he fulfilled this role, um, that. Um, that he was sent to the captivity of Israel. He was never sent to the captivity of Israel. He was amongst the Jews, or Yehuda in the land of Judah. All right, so then we see, so it seems like we see two identifications here with, with Elijah being the guy who has come in to usher in and bring in both flocks at the, at the coming in of the kingdom. All right, so this next one, let's see here. Oh, this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 30 in the Targum. Though you may be dispersed into the ends of the heavens, from thence will the word of Yahuwah gather you together. So that's exciting that the word of Yahuwah, Yahusha is doing it. And this is by, by the hand of Elijah, the great priest. And from thence will he bring you by the hand of the King Mashiach. And it goes on from there. I could quote more of that. But what I also wanted to point out was the gospel of Nicodemus. Nicodemus chapter 20, and it actually identifies both of these, uh, these individuals. Then Adonai, holding Adam by the hand, delivered him to Michael the archangel, and he had them, he led them into paradise, filled with mercy and glory. The context here is that Yahusha comes down into Sheol, he frees them from Sheol, and it's the scene where he is leading them up into paradise. And this is on the day of his crucifixion. And two very ancient men met them. And were asked by the set apart, who are ye who have not yet been with us in Sheol and have had your bodies placed in paradise? 
One of them answering said, I am Enoch, who was translated by the word of Elohim, and this man who is with me is Elijah the Tishbite, who was translated in a fiery chariot. Here we have hitherto been and have not tasted death, but are now about to return at the coming of Antichrist. So there it is. There's, there's some more doctrine for you, Antichrist. Being armed with divine signs and miracles to engage with him in battle and to be slain by him at Yerushalayim and to, and to be taken up alive again into the clouds after three days and a half. So that is a direct quote here to Revelation. So maybe maybe the Gospel of Nicodemus is a false book we need to toss it out. But here they're, they're straight out saying they are going to die in the streets of Jerusalem and that three and a half days later they are going to be taken up alive. Here is one more passage coming from, I've quoted from this a lot and I already quoted from this tonight, the Gospel of Bartholomew. And this is what it says. Uh, oh, and this is, the context is Hasatan is speaking to the prince of Sheol, down in Sheol. And the devil, Hasatan, said unto Hades, or Sheol, Why affrightest thou me, Sheol? It is a prophet. Oh, okay, and he, he believes that Yahushua coming down, he doesn't know he's the Messiah. We've been over this a lot. He thinks he's just some prophet. He's actually very haughty and proud of his catch that he crucified this person. It is a prophet, and he hath made himself like unto Elohim. This prophet will we take and bring him hither unto those that think to ascend into heaven. And Sheol said, Which of the prophets is it? Show me. Is it Enoch, the scribe of righteousness? But Elohim hath not suffered him to come down upon the earth before the end of the six thousand years. Sayest thou that it is Elias, you know, Eliahu or Elijah, the avenger? But before he cometh not down. What shall I do, whereas the destruction is of Elohim? For surely our end is at hand, for I have the number of the years in my hands. And, you know, the, the short of it is that, you know, he's saying that uh, these two men would come down at an appointed time that was not then. Um, and that we can get into that. But anyways, I just wanted to point that out, that I personally believe that these two men um, are physical men doing physical things and that they are, you know, that it's a little awkward. Um, the one thing that I've never seen really explained and I would be happy to have this uh, discussion tonight, is if these two witnesses are just a metaphor for Israel and Judah, it's a little awkward when they all die in the streets of Jerusalem and they lay there for uh, for three days. If that's us, we're like all dead in the street. Um, I've heard that explained in a few different ways. That's the one thing that's never really made sense to me. But with that, uh, passing over to you, Rob. All right. All right, so... I'm going to talk about the also the two witnesses and what I've what I gathered and think about them, and we have the uh, some time markers that are mentioned in here in these events. Obviously, we see the 42 months, we see the 1260 days, and then the, the mention of the three and a half days, and we read that for three and a half years, the 42 months. The set-apart city will be tread down uh, by the nations. So, doesn't necessarily mean it's destroyed because I that that's terminology is not there. But it's just being tread down, overran, um, or run by, in control of uh, by the nations. And the witnesses are prophesying also three and a half years, twelve hundred sixty days. And what 
what they are doing with their prophecy is they prophesying is that uh, part of what they're doing is that if you, if there's any evil against them, as Noel was speaking there, fire comes and burns them. And in the Greek, it talks about it coming out of their mouth, where here in the Hebrew, it does not mention anything out of the mouth. And so the question is, is the fire coming from the sky, being brought down from the sky as we read? So many times in the, the Torah, how, uh, like Elijah, or, um, yeah, brought down the fire from heaven, and we, we see that scenario as a description of fire being brought down from, from above. So is that what they're doing? Uh, that's, that's, that's a good question to ask, since um, it may not be coming out of their mouths, but just another option to consider and think about. They obviously have the ability to hold back the rain and uh, have different uh, uh, cause plagues and so forth uh, to those that they encounter uh, that are obviously not being not the remnant that they're speaking to. So the, the other the other point out of all this, because we read all this already, but the other point I wanted to point out is uh, three and a half days. So could the three and a half days also represent three and a half years in some way. I mean, could their bodies be laying out there three and a half years, unexposed and so forth? Is that, you know, because we, we read so many times how different uh, explanations for a day might be a thousand years, might be a hundred years, etc. Could it be years? Uh, so, if they are preaching for prophesying for three and a half years, could they be lying dead for three and a half years? Everybody passing gifts for the next three and a half years, and then boom, one day they they get up. I don't know. It's just a thought. Uh, is it three and a half days? That's what the most obvious what it's saying here. They get up, and then that's pretty much uh, uh, the next event where the earthquake happens. A tenth part of the city falls, and it talks about seven thousand sons of men dying. Not not uh, any remnant or anyone. It's just the people that are there and the nations that are in the set-apart city. And so we know that the set-apart city is overran by the nations at this point. Um, so I just want to throw those those couple of things out there to contemplate and think about of what that, what that could mean. Um, I think most of us have been brought up and understood a lot of, at least I know I have on the, the, the teachings of three and a half years, the, the two witnesses, the abomination, desolation, etc. But I just wanted to add these few thoughts to what we're reading here on on uh, this part. And then second, I'll talk about the trumpets, the seventh trumpet. And on the seventh trumpet, let me drop this in there. Uh, give me a second. Okay. Now on the seventh shofar blast, we've already read one through six. This one here, many voices in heaven proclaimed, the worthy ones of the world, all of them have come after our Lord Yeshua, and he will reign with them everlasting and everlasting. Twenty-four elders um, on their thrones fell on their faces, and then Yahweh's anger and wrath came to judge the dead ones. Give wages to the servants, the prophets, the set-apart ones, and to those who fear him, to the small and the great ones, and then to destroy those who destroyed the earth. So we see the, the judgment coming 
at at this particular last blast, uh, whether this is related to the Great White Throne Judgment or a a specific judgment prior to that one. So I, I, that's just something else to consider uh, when looking at these. And then and then lastly, I have another part of the other trumpets here. I'll just drop just for people to have, but it kind of gives you a summary of the the other trumpets too. Get some imagery on that. But uh, I'll pass it on over to Michael from here and then follow up on the next round uh, afterwards. Michael? All righty, thank you. Um, I have a lot on this part. I will split it up, but I do have a lot. So hopefully my voice can, can hold up. Um, okay, so I was doing some research. Two types of witnesses in the Torah. Um, there's attesting witnesses who must present when a particular legal procedure occurs in order for it to be considered legally valid and testifying witnesses whose purpose is to testify in court that they have witnessed some act. Um, so an example of the first type would be someone present at a wedding ceremony or divorce proceedings in order for these to be valid. Is this a wedding ceremony? An example of the second type of witness is the case described in the verse, witnesses to a crime. Is that what this is? Because this is judgment, but is this the judgment of the goats? I'm not sure. Um, so uh, maybe I'm leaning towards the first one, that these are witnessing uh, of some sort. Of... Uh, Noel already mentioned uh, the Gospel of Nicodemus, where they specifically state Enoch and Elijah. Um, I thought that was awesome. Uh, others believe it's Moses and Elijah because they appeared during the Transfiguration or because Enoch was not of Abraham's descendant. Some also believe that they're Moses and Elijah due to the description of what they, they, they are to do. They have the power to shut down heaven like Elijah and turn water into blood, which Moses did. So I'm going to start on number one. Um, this is pretty cool. So I guess I need to read both here. So, and there was given to me a rod, read like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. And then in the Hebrew, that a reed like a rod was given to me, stand up in the temple of Yahweh and his altar and those who worship it. So I heard this from Skiba. I'm not claiming that this is mine, but this is awesome. So basically, I want to talk about time travel. Um, yes, time travel. So it appears to me that two other prophets in the Old Testament saw John measuring the temple. So we'll go to Zechariah 2, 1 through 5. Or actually, I won't read all five. But then I raised my eyes, and this is Zechariah, and looked, and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. Israel set me, high, set me on a very high mountain. And on it to the south, there was something like a structure of a city. So he brought me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance like the appearance of bronze with a thread of flax and a measuring rod in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. Whether in dreams or visions, Zechariah and Ezekiel appear to be seeing John measure the temple. That's pretty cool. These are, these are hundreds of years apart, I think. How, how does that happen? So sure, it's a vision, but they're talking to him. They're doing the same thing. Time is a construct. You know, you, you know the father's outside of time. We're the only ones stuck in it. Look at how he's look at how he's having people talk to each other at different ends of you know the timeline. Um, I also want to talk about the word temple here. It's the same word used in Revelation twenty one. 
the New Jerusalem chapter. So uh, 2122, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. My stake is, my claim is that this is not the New Jerusalem, because the New Jerusalem doesn't have to me that doesn't make sense now what is it i have no clue but i'm trying to make the case that it isn't the new jerusalem um number two i'm going to read the hebrew but cast out the inner temple and do not measure it for it is given to the nations and they will tread down the set apart city 42 months i'm going to focus on the inner temple given to the nations to trample isaiah 52 1 awake awake clothe yourself in your strength zion Clothe yourself with your beautiful garments, Jerusalem, the holy city. There it is. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. We know we have, we have to be circumcised, spiritually speaking, to enter into heaven. <clears throat> Luke 21, 24, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Again, Gentiles trampling. Um... I'm surprised Rob didn't do this because he's big on numbers too. 42, so 42 months. I just want to you know, talk about the number 42 sometimes. Um, 42 generations in the Gospel of Matthew, of uh, the genealogy of Yeshua. Um, the beast is prophesied to reign for 42 months. Yah sent bears to maul 42 of the teenage boys who mocked Elijah. Um, the phrase little children appears 42 times. I thought this was interesting. So the tribe of Levi was given a total number of 48 cities as part of their inheritance in the land of milk and honey. But six of those are for refugees or the Goshen, leaving 42 other cities. I thought that was cool. And then the children of Israel had 42 wanderings in the desert until they were finally given rest. Okay, so number two also talks about the court. But So in the Greek, but the court, which was not a temple. Um, that word, the court, in Greek is ale. So, and Noel kind of hit on it, but the courtyard, forecourt, sheepfold um, can also mean palace and house. So that same word is also used in John 10. I'm going to focus on the sheepfold. So, truly, truly, I say to you, the ones who do not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But the, the one who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. So it's basically saying, you know, the Gentiles aren't allowed in because... They're not cheap, you know, they there's voice. Um, yeah, so number three, um, I thought this was an awesome cross-reference, so I'm just going to read the Hebrew, and I will give my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Hebrews 10.28, anyone who has ignored the law of Moses is put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Do not ignore the law of Moses. We'll convict you of that. All right, so here's my big one. So number four, and I will split it up after this, but I'll be a while. So I'm going to read both, and they'll kind of hit on it. So these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before God of the earth. And in the Hebrew, and these are the two olive trees and the two torches. So that's a difference, standing before the Elohim of the earth. So, you know, I'm not saying these two are it, but let's be honest, guys. We, should, we need to be starting with Zechariah 3 and 4. It's an exact quotation. So, uh, you know, I love all the, you know, the, these are at least prototypes because this is an exact. So, all right, where do I want to begin here? So, like I said, it doesn't mean that these two individuals are the two, but this should be one of the foundations when discussing it. So 
In the book of Zechariah 3, 6 through 10, Zechariah the prophet experiences a vision given to him by an angel of the Lord in which the restoration and cleansing of Joshua, the priestly duties, are affirmed. Including the visions were requirements in which Joshua was expected to uphold. These include walking in the ways of Yah, keeping the requirements of the law, ruling Yah's house, taking charge of my courts by fulfilling these duties. The angel in the book of Zechariah granted access to the inter inner temple to Joshua and his fellow priest. The vision also functioned to purify Joshua and sanctify him for the preparation of his priestly duties. Okay, and then we read in Zechariah 4, and this is exact. Like, And he said to me, what do you see? This is Zerubbabel asking. And I said, I behold a lampstand, and all of it was gold with his bowl on top of it. It's seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps, which are on top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left. What are they? So he answered me, do you not know what these are? And I said, I, I went down a little bit further. No, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by, by the Lord of the whole earth. So Zerubbabel is like asking this angel, and he's like, don't you know? These are the two anointed ones that are standing before the whole of the earth. If you recall what I read in Revelation 11:4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. It's an exact. So in my opinion, um, they're also known as the sons of oil. So now this is a commentary. So these two special men, and because it's going to talk about what who they were and kind of their prototypes. So they, they were two great families of the kingdom of Israel. They were known as the sons of oil. So Zerubbabel was the, of the royal household, the family of David, of the tribe of Judah. Sound familiar? Had the nation remained, Zerubbabel might have well been its king instead of governor under Darius, the Persian prince or king. Nevertheless, Zerubbabel was able to shepherd his people in a kingly role and was the ancestor of Yeshua. And then the second one is Joshua of the priestly household, the family of Aaron of the tribe of Levi. He had the temple of Solomon still standing. Joshua might have well been the high priest. As it was, he was officiating on an altar built amongst the rubble of Jerusalem. Nevertheless, he was able to make atonement for the people's sins. Joshua, the name in its Greek form is Jesus, was the foreshadow of Yeshua. Um, and then finally, um, you know, in Revelation, we're talking about seals, marks, stamps, signets. There's two passages that I found that Zerubbabel was a signet. So um, this one is Sirach 49.13. How shall we magnify Zerubbabel? He was like a signet ring on the right hand. And then Haggai 2.23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you a, like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declared the Lord of the hosts. I hope you enjoyed that. That's what I have. I still have some more, but I thought that was awesome on um, the two witnesses. That was really good. Now, Michael, you had pointed out that, you know, that you started out talking about the time travel and you brought up Ezekiel. Let me just read this here. You brought up the the person that was seen by Ezekiel as being a bronze, bronze dude. Um, and, oh, I should have put more verses here. Let me put Ezekiel... 40, let's do 20, uh, oh, it's 2 through 4. That's what I got wrong, 2 through 4. All right, so it says, in, in visions of Elohim, he brought me into the land of Yasharel and set me on a very high mountain, and upon it toward the south was was as the structure of a city. Now, I, I well, I'll comment on this when I finish reading it. So he brought me there, and look, a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze, 
and a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, see with your eyes and hear with your ears, and set your heart on all that I am showing you. For you were brought here in order to show them to you. Declare to the house of Yasharel all that you are seeing. Which is kind of interesting, if this were John, just, just going with this, that John is told to do something, he goes and does it, and then Ezekiel shows up, and he gives a message to Ezekiel, what he's supposed to write. And so that that is... Um, that's a fascinating thought, uh, but but I would also like to point out because I was uh, I I uh, I do admit um, I decided <laughs> I got on the phone with uh, Ronit today, and um, and I I know that I think Ronit and uh, Rob were passing notes um, in class this week, but I got on and I asked some uh, clarify clarification questions with her, and just asking her. On this temple, because I've, I've been just kind of th like I started out saying like guys, I'm, I, sometimes I just throw my my hands up and I don't know, and uh, <laughs> and, and and so there's this this temple that he's supposed to measure. Now I, I grew up with this um, idea and you know the dispensational dispensational uh, Darby world that there is going to be a future temple in in Israel that's going to be put up and it's going to kickstart the seven-year tribulation and that this is the three and a half years of this future temple. Um, the thing is, though, is that what's interesting about that viewpoint is that Ezekiel does talk about this third temple. I talked about this in my, my whole talk on the, the a tale of two Jerusalems. If that is the case, I'm just pointing out here that if that John uh, if John is the bronze dude that is seen, which is interesting in its in itself, because I've talked about those who were ascending to heaven are also glorified, so he would have been glorified as well. If this is John that Ezekiel sees, then he's actually measuring the third temple, which is what I believe is the temple that Messiah built on the earth during the millennial kingdom. So I just want to point that out there. I don't want to confuse things anymore, but because th this is like a, a puzzle uh, and many different variations of possibilities. Again, I'm not saying that Ezekiel saw John. I'm just going off what Michael said. I thought that was kind of interesting. I was talking to Ronit today, and, and she could talk about it more, but she feels reading the Hebrew that this is specifically talking about the second temple. And uh, I don't want to misquote her, but she can talk about that. And and. You know, this this begs all sorts of questions because some people who are advocating the millennial kingdom already happens say that Revelation was all fulfilled by 70 AD and the millennial kingdom started. And I will remind them that if that is true, that if the millennial kingdom started in 70 AD, then you can't quote from Josephus anymore. You can't quote from these historians because they were all destroyed. There's nobody writing. There's no Josephus to write these books. Hopefully everyone can see that. And they'll go like, oh. And then the next week I just see him quoting from Josephus again. I'm like, ah, oh. you, know, you can't do that. Because if the millennial kingdom was ushered in 70 AD, there's no more Rome. There's no more bad guys. There's nobody writing false history. It had to, that means Josephus would have been invented in the 1800s or the 1700s or the whereabout. Hopefully everyone sees that. You know, and I and my point is, is I believe the timeline went further. I believe that Rome was destroyed about 500 years later. As I pointed out, that's when I believe Enoch and Elijah showed up. So 
this is kind of confusing because it seems like Revelation jumps around a lot. Is John being told to measure the second temple or the third temple? And uh, I kind of leave that to you guys. Another, a couple things I do want to point out here is that the the Hebrew text here really reads more like um, that not every eye will see them. You know, in the Greek, it's this idea that, oh, there, there has to be televisions. It has to be a future event because, you know, not everybody in the world was able to see them when they died. But it doesn't say that here. It says, and some of the nations and of the tribes, meaning of the tongues, will see their corpses three and a half days, and they will not bury them. So some, not all. This isn't on CNN, guys. And um, another, one other little um, thing, a couple other things to point out is that I had mentioned in past weeks of coming to this understanding that the plagues that are coming down upon the earth are directed at those who are unrepentant, right? They are not set apart. These plagues are not affecting the set apart. They're not the ones going to Gehenna or the Lake of Fire or whatever. They're not being affected by this. And so it's interesting that when you read in 10, the reason why, I actually love it how they phrase it in verse 12, and it says, and their haters saw them when they were ascending to heaven. Uh, the, the Greek says uh, they're enemies, but they, they interpret it here, the hater, they're haters. I like that because we, you know, we all talk about having haters. Uh, but it says that, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice about them when they die and will send one another gifts. Uh, it's kind of like an evil, like, well, I won't say evil Christmas. It's kind of like Christmas. Uh, for these prophets cause much suffering to who? To those who dwell on the earth. Um, but contextually, this this goes in with the fact that it, it, they're, not, they're not bringing torment to and suffering to the set apart. Like we know that. Like Moses was not tormenting the set apart in Egypt. Um, and it just, it's kind of interesting. It makes me wonder how many of the, the plagues that have already come down um, um, in the book of Revelation was caused by these individuals. Um, you know, like it, where it says, you know, an angel is doing whatever, a, a shofar blast, but they're actually, you know, they're commanding these things to happen. I kind of just wonder about that. And one last thing that I want to point out is that it talks about the animal which comes from the deep will make war with them and will overcome them and kill them. Now, we talked about the last chapter, the, the messenger coming, this straddling the, the seashore and the, the earth. And here, so we see a creature coming from the deep. And uh, I have reason to suspect that this is perhaps Leviathan or could be Gog. I don't know. Um, but you know, just to point out, we, we talked about this earlier in the study, that here in the Hebrew it says animal, whereas the Greek it says beast. It's really the same thing. Uh, there is no word, I guess, for beast in Hebrew. It, they would just say animal, but we would call it like a wild beast. Um, and it, you know, it, it still means the same thing, a, a government or a king or a spiritual entity, but it's just interesting that it says it comes from the deep and, uh, just want to throw that out there. I'm going to pass it back to you, Rob. Sure. I'll add a few, few more things, uh, regarding the, the beast of the deep and overcoming them and kill them. Uh, the, them is the, the nations, the people of the nations, not the set apart um is the way i am reading that in the context so and as we read this past week about leviathan 
being able to uh, kill on command from Lemek, uh, but he wasn't able to touch the set apart. So here, once again, I, I would say this lines up if if that is if that beast is specifically Leviathan or uh, uh, whatever beast you would want to put that on Hasatan or or whatever serpent, etc. Uh, I think it, they can all they it will overcome and kill them uh, the 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 nations the people there. So I, I would interpret that. Um, I did want to quickly mention this part was the part where I did some research on the temple and I had some really good verses and I don't want to talk about it because I don't have the scriptures to back it. And I don't want to pique anyone's interest on it, but uh, if I come across it again, I'll have to I'll bring it up again because I had some I, I had a, a really good thought on uh, the set apart city where I was tying in it being overran, uh, and it was tied in to either a the the millennial kingdom coming to the end of that possibly. Uh, scenario of that, but um, I won't bring it up again until I, I have the scriptures to talk about again. But it was it was it was something that was really interesting. Um, last thing I wanted to mention is Michael talking about the two types of witnesses. I I think my opinion would be the two witnesses that are taking place here are probably one of one from both sides. One to, to be a testimony to the to the father to the law to what has been written, and then the second one to the witness of the crimes that were were done and being done by the nations and by the adversary. So I would I would say each of them would be uh, complementing each other in that sense and proclaiming and prophesying during this time. Uh, with that, I'll pass it over to Michael for further discussion. Already. Left, but I don't think I want to say everything so we can get into some roundtable. Um, let's see where I want to go. So, I guess number seven, uh, Noel kind of hit on it the, the differences. Um, and when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascended out of the bottom split, and then in the Hebrew, and after they included their testimony, the animal which comes from the from the deep. So, the, that's the difference it's a uh, beast and animal, bottomless put in the deep, and whatever you want to say, beast and animal. I, I've read that this is the first mention of 36 references to this individual person or whatever it is in Revelation. Um, let's see what I want to talk about. So Noah already talked about in 12, it says haters. And then Pam puts in the Hebrew Psalms, it has haters. I thought that was interesting. Um, let's see, I'll just read two more. Number 18, um, when the nations were filled with anger, also the time to judge the dead ones and to give wages to your servants, the prophets, and to the set-apart ones and those who fear you, to the small ones and the great ones, and to destroy those who destroyed the earth. This this is why I'm leaning towards, it doesn't say anything about the evil ones. You know, he's judging his servants and giving wages to them, the prophets and the set-apart ones and those who fear you. Um, so that's why I lean towards more of it being two witnesses for a wedding or whatever the other one was, I forgot. But uh, the, the Daniel 7, a river flowing was flowing and coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands were serving him. 
and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court convened, and this were open. I love it. It's just more court analogy. Um, finally, I thought this was an awesome apocryphal cross-reference. I'm going to read number 19 in the Hebrew. And Yahuwah's house of prayer was open in the heavens, and the ark of the tables of the covenant was seen in the house of prayer. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings and an earthquake and great hail. So 2 Maccabees 7 talks about it. So it talks about the ark. Let's see. This is a long one. And then the last two sentences is what I really want to highlight. So these same records also tell us that Jeremiah, acting under divine guidance, commanded the tent of the Lord's presence and the covenant box to follow him to the mountain where Moses had looked down on the land, which God had promised our people. When Jeremiah got to the mountain, he found a huge cave, and there he hid the tent of the Lord's presence, the covenant box, and the altar of incense. Then he sealed up the entrance. Some of Jeremiah's friends ten tried to follow him and mark the way, but they could not find the cave. Here it is. When Jeremiah learned what they had done, he reprimanded them, saying, no one must know about this place until Yah gathers his people together again and shows them mercy. At that time, he will reveal, he will reveal where these things are hidden, and the dazzling light of his presence will be as it was in Solomon. So this, this is, in my opinion, talking about he hid the Ark of the Covenant until the proper time. Um, I'll hand it off to Noah. I'm done with Revelation 11. Yeah, I think I'm I'm done too. You know, this thing is, you know, reading this, one of the reasons that I generally don't like to leading Bible studies on Revelation is that everyone tends to end up having their opinion on it. And sometimes people come up with unique opinions on it, of which I am also to blame. And uh, but yet here we are in Revelation and you know Reading this stuff, some things make sense, and other times I have more questions than answers. And I just really want to relay that information that as I'm going through this, I hope everyone doesn't. I, I think I'm making myself clear that I I don't want people to think like I got this figured out because I don't. I mean, there's so many questions I have in this chapter. Like it, it talks about uh, the city. Uh, what does it say? A tenth of the city uh, came down. It's in here somewhere. Now I can't find it. But I'm looking for like that's a huge earthquake. And I'm trying to figure out, according to official history, when did this earthquake take place? We know that there was an earthquake in, uh, I guess, 33 AD. Uh, I was able to find, uh, official history records, another major earthquake in Jerusalem in 1000, uh, 1033 AD, which is interesting because there's that number again, 33. Um, you know, what I'm, I'm trying to figure out, does it coincide with the Crusades? What's going on? And I don't know. Just I have so many questions here. and. I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts on this chapter. So, Rob, do you have anything else you want to add before we roundtable it? No, I, I just want to uh, agree with you that, you know, these are just our opinions. There's so, been so many opinions out there, and I try to look at this as as we're going through it and looking for for anything new or something that stands out and sharing it and seeing what else others have on it because i have so many lenses i'm looking through uh at these at these scriptures uh from what i was initially you know brought up in many many years ago so i i'm just uh i guess i'd say as long as we all know that revelation is written in such a way that it is obviously not clear but it is uh, very symbolic of many different things 
that we have to keep an open mind and not be careful in getting caught up on a specific view uh, and getting um, uh, led astray by that too. But uh, be open open to these to this book because it is very uh, uh, challenging in in what it's saying. So that's all I got to add. But I'm done. Well, you know, I'll say to that that what I really want to emphasize with where I'm coming from is that I'm I'm basically it's almost like a, a cold case that I'm I'm pulling Revelation off the shelf and trying as an I guess investigator to open up the case again and try to to look at it from the perspective that you know from the lens of the mud flood happening or the series of mud flood events and the 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 reset events and that the millennial kingdom literally physically happened as you guys know and trying to to work on this book from that perspective and i don't have all the answers i have a lot of questions and i can't figure it all out i had a a guy tell me this last week that you know he was like he's like he's he's done listening to me. He sent me this note to say he's done because he said that I didn't bring up one good point, not one good point on the millennial kingdom. And I was like, it's like really not, not one good point. Like, <laughs> I hope I brought up one good point that, you know, that perhaps the millennial kingdom happens. I think I brought up quite a few points, but I think the point is uh, that there are a lot of um, questions I still have. And I think what happens is, is when people are listening on the other end, they're looking to know what he's going to say about this because they have a lot of questions. And when they hear me say, I can't answer some of that, they're like, well, that's, you know, he didn't think through this clearly enough. That's proof that this is a deception and we're not going to listen to this anymore. And this is why I encourage other people, guys, like, I can't, I can't, I'm not the, I'm not the guru on the hill. I'm just some guy trying to figure this out. And I'm not sitting around for 20 years before I announce my investigation. I'm bringing it out to people and saying, hey, guys, you can, you can uh, work on this as well. You can look at some of this stuff and bring it forward. Um, we know, you know, like the earthquake. When did that happen? Tell me about it. You know, what did you read in the history? You know, that kind of stuff. And, um, and I always really appreciate all that stuff. So anyways, let's, uh, let's now on that, let's open it up. I said my, I said my piece. And um, what are you guys' thoughts on this chapter? Or, of course, on the, the previous chapter? Okay, I have a lot of thoughts on this chapter. So, um, up to reading these manuscripts in Hebrew, um, I only read Revelation in English for uh, many years now, and I basically accepted the traditional Christian um, interpretation of revelation and then i read this chapter in hebrew and i must say um no i was on the fence all along until this week in regard to the millennial kingdom and then when i read this chapter in hebrew i'm no longer on the fence um this chapter in my opinion is most definitely speaking about the second temple um the 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 terminology in the chapter is identical to the terminology of uh, ezekiel chapter 8 where yah is um bringing ezekiel to look at the first temple um and um showing him what's going on behind the scenes you know and why he's so enraged um the terminology is exactly the same terminology 
And to be honest, I am, I mean, two weeks ago, I had uh, whatever, two or three weeks ago, I dropped a bump shell when I read the Hebrew of John. And I, and then I went and I read the Hebrew manuscripts of the other Gospels and I found out that the translation, I cannot explain it any other way other than intentionally misleading, okay? And this time, the translation, again, is intentionally misleading. Um, the words in this chapter are as follows. Number one, um, it, there is no such thing as set apart. Nothing, nada, zero set apart in this chapter in Hebrew. There is holy, okay? So what they are talking about is the holy city, Ira Kodesh. And I just want to drop two verses from the, uh, the, the Tanakh. This verse, and then this verse, okay? Um, and both of them... In Hebrew, it doesn't say set apart. I, I have no idea why they keep saying set apart. It's holy, the holy city. So whenever in the Bible, in, in the Hebrew Bible, whenever um, the, there's these two words appear together, the holy city, it always refers to Jerusalem, always. Okay, and the, the Jerusalem of the Bible, not the new Jerusalem. Okay, so, um, so it says holy city here. It says holy city in Nehemiah. It says holy city in, in Ezekiel and other places in the Bible when it refers to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem. And then another terminology that is used here is Hechal Yahweh. Uh, which is basically like saying the palace or the temple of uh, of uh, of Yah, and that's the terminology used again in the Bible to to describe the holy temple, Beit Hamikdash. Okay, um, and they even use the same terminology in uh, you know John and Ezekiel as far as the the internal area of the temple okay so for me it was like the moment i read it in hebrew it's just like uh, i don't know it looked to me very clear that um he's he's showing him the current temple and he's telling him don't even bother um um measuring anything to do with the the internal um, part of the temple because in any case I'm going to give it to nations and they are going to annihilate it. The word that he's using is crushing, like uh, I was trying to figure out a word in English for it, but it's beyond crushing. It's like it's devastatingly crushing the city uh, here a Kodesh, the, the Jerusalem, the holy city, uh, within three and a half years. Um, so um, those, are, those are my thoughts, and I get a little bit passionate when I feel that um, 
the translations are trying, like, like there is an agenda behind the translation and that's what they feel. Because if in, in previous chapters they saw the word Kodesh or Kedoshim um, and they translated them as holy and holy ones, why would they not translate it the same here and translate it as set apart? I don't understand it. But um, here it's holy city, Ira Kodesh. And then um, when he's talking later in the verse, which verse was it? Where that you uh, you kept saying the set apart um, like the saints um, here the word is gdoshim holy ones okay not set apart but gdoshim so um, so those those are my thoughts um, about quick this chapter quick question uh, just for clarification are, are you saying that that the the holy city would be trampled down for 42 months or in 42 months um the way he said uh, um he's saying it for a period of 42 months okay. they will they will uh, like completely trample it down i i, I can't even come up with a a, a word in English that would actually capture the enormity of what the, the of what the Hebrew word is saying. Sure, but that that obviously lines up with what we know of yeah. sixty six to seventy A D, right? But yes. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. And contextually, that makes the most sense. I mean, you know, when people are saying that Revelation is written in, you know, 90 AD, you know, that's why, you know, they take it off to some of their meaning. But yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, that, that's one of the things I was talking to uh, Ronito about on the phone, because the next question is, if, if he's talking here about measuring the, what we call the second temple, and that for 3.5 years, it would be trampled down and completely destroyed. Then immediately he goes into the next verse, and I will give my two witnesses. And so my question was, well, who are these two witnesses? Uh, because again, I, I'm, I'm willing to accept that the, the, I'm willling to accept that the, the, the like gospel Nicodemus might not be legit. I think it is. Um, but are these, is this a time jump? Um, I mean, because, you know, we, we have, it, you know, it seems like Revelation at this point, it kind of goes back and forth, right? Like we were talking about how in Revelation um, Revelation 12, we get into the Revelation 12 sign, right? The the idea of the um, the woman, the, the virgin, yeah, which, the which is, right, which is Virgo and mm -hmm. the, within the Zodiac, which points to uh, Yom Teruah. Mm -hmm. And the the birth of Messiah at that time, and so now it's going back in time. And does do these two prophets appear during this time with uh, when Josephus is documenting the destruction of the temple, or do they come at a later time? Or are we are we talking about two completely other uh, witnesses than uh, than Enoch and Elijah, even though they do identify themselves in Nicodemus as those who will be trampled um, or killed on the streets of Jerusalem? So I have a lot of yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. You know the, so forty-two months 
is equal to 1260 days. It's exactly the same. It's just two ways of saying three and a half years. So I think like the two verses, one after another, talking about three and a half years, I have a feeling we are talking about the same three and a half years. Sure. So now my my next thing is we, we were talking earlier today. Now, when I gave the um the when I wrote the paper and delivered a couple months like a month or so ago, two months ago on what's called the glorious appearing of Yehusha HaMashiach and showing how all these um, these prophecies came about by 66 AD and he fulfilled his promises to that generation. One thing I, I left out of that kind of on purpose just for lack of time and I, I really wasn't sure what to do with it is Josephus talks about uh, an individual who whose name happened to be Yeshua. Uh, it's translated Jesus of course in, in the Latin. Uh, or Jesus, but there was an individual named, uh, we'll just call him Yeshua, who uh, was basically, he was kind of like a prophet in Jerusalem leading up to his destruction, and he um, he was like beaten and whipped really badly, like horribly just beaten and left for dead in the streets. And then he starts prophesying for years, like, whoa, whoa, the city, it's coming to its destruction. And then finally, I think like a Roman like throws a rock and like with a sling or something like that and hits him in the head and kills him. Um, but, and so one of the questions is, is like, was this one of the two prophets? I don't think that fits the picture, uh, at least from what Josephus tells us. And, you know, talking about the, th- uh, the, 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 um, 42 months that he doesn't give the same window timeline as what John talks about here. So my only, my only thing is, is like, while, while we see the picture being fulfilled of the temple being destroyed. And I, I I'm with you on, you know, the second temple uh, being measured here and handed over and destroyed. I'm still looking for the, the two witnesses in, in history. And if they, did appear in 66 to 70 AD. They're certainly not written about like, you know, Josephus, everyone else left it out. So um, yeah, I'd like, I'm sorry. I'd like to ask uh, Ronit, if you see in the Hebrew, when it's talking about the 42 months on verse two, the way it is in English, uh, but cast out the inner temple, do not measure it for it is given to the nations and they will tread down the set apart city. 42 months would could that be interpreted that they will tread down the city um 42 months straight or f- just 42 months you know a few months here a few months there w- what's your thoughts on that so can we call it the holy city instead of set apart city <laughs> i'm already freaking yeah. right over that <laughs> okay so um it looks like it will be a pro like like when i read it in hebrew it looks like a process that will last 42 months so anyone else have any um any thoughts on this yeah i want to comment on verse eight that adon um Yehusha was crucified in Sodom in Egypt. Um not Israel. Oh, yeah. yeah, I what I put in my uh, slide was and I didn't expound on that further, but yeah, it I put in there the corpses will be laid out on the streets called 
Sodom and Mitzrayim where Yeshua was crucified. So uh, that's the, what I I got out of that, where the corpses will be on the streets that are called that, whether it's the names of the streets are called that. Maybe one one corpse on the street of Sodom, one corpse on the street of Mitzrayim. Um, where Yeshua was crucified. So where Yeshua was crucified, well, obviously, doesn't mean it's strictly uh, right in that same place, but in that general vicinity area. So that's how I I took that one. Yes. Yeah, so in Hebrew, it does uh, it does like the Sodom and Mitzrayim refer to the streets um, in the holy city. Um, and it could be like literal names or it could be like figuratively speaking, you know, um, like um, um, referring to what's going on on those streets. Yeah, and it's interesting that it's spiritually called. It's almost like, yeah, not holy. <laughs> yeah, I... Yeah, I picture those streets in the city that are prob probably have been turned into, you know, like a prostitution street or, you know, stuff like that. That's why it's probably given those names, sadly. So, so the fact that people commit sins doesn't mean that the city ceases to be holy. This city has always been a holy city in the Bible, and that's how it's called all the way till the end, the holy city. Right. Uh, but and that's why these people are going to be punished because they are desecrating a holy place. Yep, makes sense. What do you think about what Nikki said? It says spiritually called. He was impaled in Jerusalem. Well, but it, it, that's what it does say. It's it says uh, verse eight, which is spiritually. Oh, which is okay. Yeah, in Hebrew, in the Greek, it says which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. Whereas the Hebrew just says, which is called Sodom and Mitzrayim. So, so either the Greek is correct or it's not. Maybe they're just adding commentary on what it really is spiritually. I don't know. I was kind of, uh, Rob, when you're describing that, I really was picturing like the street corners of Sodom and Egypt. <laughs> you know, like that little awkward to uh, be standing on those street corners, but... Yeah, yeah, that's, that's why. Yeah, yeah, I don't think uh, there are. <laughs> I don't think there were cities called Sodom <laughs> and Egypt in Jerusalem. In my opinion, the Greek um, interpretation is correct. It's it's mostly like referring to symbolically what those streets represent. Now, Romy, uh, we haven't gotten that far in the study. I don't know if you've read that far ahead, particularly in the Hebrew, but the question uh, has come up. How do you feel? Because if, if Jerusalem is always the holy city, how do you feel about Jerusalem being the whore of Babylon? So I, I don't think that, so for me, Jerusalem is like the, the, the geographic physical place, right? Um, and even the, the, the most holy place can be desecrated, right? Um, so um, I, I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, so I'm open to it that, that even though this is the holiest place, it would still be run by the most abominable people, you know, and um, 
has to be punished. When I when I think of Mystery Babylon, uh, my thought immediately goes to the mystery religions, which is you know often depicted as a goddess, uh, particularly the mysteries of Babylon, uh, which came through Nimrod, which originally came through the Watchers, and when you get to uh, so you have the mystery religions all over the world, uh, the mysteries of Isis, the, the Bacchic mysteries, Eleusinian mysteries, the, the Druidic mysteries, the, you know, everybody, every culture wants their shot at the mysteries. Um, and when you get to the Book of Enoch, you see the, um, the these, some, some translations call them sirens, interesting enough, other whores. But it's the wives of the the watchers, the women who were considered whores spiritually and physically, and that they are uh, they're they're depicted in that scene where um, Enoch sees like these mountains of fire burning, um, rolling around in the in the flames, and uh, so I always make that connection. I always think of um, the whore of Babylon as not as a place as a uh, a spiritual religious world system uh, that's just of course wh where my mind turns to but i, I asked you uh Roni, just yeah what you thought about that so because I'm, yeah, I'm curious if, you, um, if we go back to ezekiel the chapter that i just uh quoted i think chapter eight um was it chapter um, okay, I didn't, I didn't put, uh, but Ezekiel chapter 8, when um, Yah takes Ezekiel to show him what's going on inside the temple, this is a holy, the holy of, of holies, you know, and it, when you read what was going on inside the temple and in the, the different um, areas of the temple, anywhere from the external all the way to the most internal part, it, it's, unbelievable unbelievable what they were doing um with all of the idolatry and uh, just just speechless when you read it and that's a holy place you know so it a holy place is a holy place but then the people can uh, desecrate it completely all right well i'll just read what exceeding abundantly put in here ezekiel 16 verse uh well, starting in verse 1, and it says, Again, the word of Yahuwah came to me, son of man, make known to Yerushalayim her abominations. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished uh, your whorings. And uh, on, my, on any passerby, your beauty... Here, some of this translation. Let me... Um, let's see if I can type this into BibleBot and read this again. Uh, just to make sure I'm getting this right. 16 verses 1, or I think you want 15 through 17, or 15 through 18. Let me try that. Um, okay. But you trusted in your own loveliness and hoard because of your name and poured out your whorings on everyone passing by who would have it. And you took some of your garments and made multicolored high places for yourself. That's kind of interesting, the multicolored high places. And hoard on them. I'm trying to imagine what a multicolored high place looks like, which should not have come about, nor shall it be. And you took your splendid adornments of my gold and my silver that I gave you and made for yourself images of a male and hoard with them. 
and you took your embroidered garments and covered them, and you set my oil and my incense before them. That last part's kind of ouch. Like, who is like, you took my my oil and my incense and offered it to other Elohim. Right, and so he says, yeah, Ezekiel 16.1 tells us who is being talked to. It's Jerusalem. So... Yes, so if you start all the way from the beginning um, in chapter 16, so uh, first he, he talks to Jerusalem, um, pretty much, I mean, it's the people in Jerusalem, right, that are doing all of this, not the city itself. Um, and how, you know, I mean, all of this horrific description, but then you reach to, you reach verse 8, and then he switches and he's saying, but I will, I, I will cleanse you and I will um, come in covenant with you and you will be mine and I will, you know, I will, um, 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 it's hard for me to do a, a translation on the run. But anyway, if you put like verse 8 and on, um, you will see how he's going to, put beautiful clothes on her and jewelry and um and then you will be beautiful again and all of the nations will hear about you and how perfect you are and so on so let's let's read the whole chapter and not just half of it and yeah the first part of the chapter is saying that the jerusalem hoard but then he's going to cleanse it and betroth it again now, I like what Lee put in here. He worded it, uh, what I was trying to get at uh, a little bit better than I did. And he said, the whore worshiping, um, uh, whore, the, the whore of whores. But he, he, he mentions here uh, Ishtar, uh, Diana, Isis, Athena, Disponia, Artemis. And, um, and uh, he's saying that they're pointing to the mother of gods, a.k.a. Semiramis, which was nimrod's mother slash wife so uh yeah that and that's that's exactly what i think of as Semiramis being the the mother of whores as well so just to throw that out there that that's yeah, not and, and that's if not, you look at it, verse um three in that chapter he's saying originally uh jerusalem was the offspring of Canaan, a, a, a father was ca from Canaan, and um, Emory, which are the giants, and then a mother was Hiti. I, I don't know how you say it in English, the Hittite, Hittite, yeah. So, and so he's talking about that originally it's, um, it, it, it's the daughter of um, I, I, idols, idol worshippers and idols. It's interesting that uh, I, I'm preparing something right now on um, on Nimrod, and that I might present in the next couple of weeks or so. I'm not sure when it's going to be ready, but it, it you know, and Rob is. I've been kind of going over some notes with Rob on the book of two of book of the two pearls, and it talks about how Nimrod would return again in the end. This is something that Rob Skiba put a lot of. Uh, research into about the idea that that the Antichrist was actually Nimrod, and but the Book of the Two Pearls says that not only Nimrod but almost also Semiramis would return, and I think that's a really kind of interesting idea 
that I don't know. I'm just again throwing this out there for people with the, the horror Babylon. We'll get more into that later on in Revelation about how the the kings drunk from her you know cup and all that kind of stuff, and uh, the idea that Simmerimus embodies this this mother harlot of this uh, of this world. The spiritual world system of the mystery religions that has, you know, incarnate materialized itself in so many ways. I've, I've spent the last several years just writing about all the ways that the mystery religions have materialized themselves, um, including, you know, the NASA narrative and all that kind of stuff. So, it, just to point out here, exceeding abundantly, just posted. He says, uh, says, sorry, Ro- Ronit. Yes, you are right. I should have just posted the whole passage to show how much Yah loved her, which makes the infidelity so painful. Anybody else have any thoughts? Yeah, I'd like to mention something. Please do. Um, <clears throat> I think this might be like a long observation, but bear with me because I'm going to come to the conclusion after all. It's not going to be too long. So we know, we know that... Um, I mean, I was always wondering... During the revelation, why would there ever be any reason that, um, I mean, why would there be any reason why Yah would actually keep the rest of the population? This is not a hard judgment on my end, but but I just wanted to know that why actually Yah, uh, reading through all the, from first to the seventh trumpet, uh, it was, it's mentioned all the time, like he burned one third of uh, one third of the ground scorched the earth. Uh, he um, he sent the second trumpet, sent the comet, uh, a comet of uh, the the star, and the sea turned to blood. One third of the and then the third tum- trumpet, one third of the sea water turned to bitter, etc. Now <clears throat> it's very interesting how it mentions one third as if he intentionally wants to keep. The other two thirds um, uh, of the world non-harmed, as if he has a plan for during the Millennium Kingdom to actually, for some other people, not the Holy City, but the rest of the world to actually be alive. And from understanding, as as we kind of read, I know I'm jumping a little bit ahead, as we as we will read later on, because we've all more or less know how the Revelation kind of ends up. Uh, we know that um, um, the other people, not the people who are who live in the uh, holy city, but the rest of the world, which is Babylon, and the people who didn't take the mark of the beast, but they are not necessarily uh, believers in Christ, which most probably they were given another chance to live in the world during the revelation, du- during the millennium kingdom, in order to know better uh, Yeshua and to connect with him. And... We read a lot that, you know, there's been, during the Millennium Kingdom, uh, pilgrims to the Holy City, and most probably this was done not by the Babylonians, which were kind of isolated, uh, but from uh, the rest of the world, which they still didn't know, and Christianity most probably hadn't spread uh, to them. Now, this is how I see why actually uh, Yah destroyed only one-third and I wanted, to dis- I wanted to discuss the permanence of the state of the world. Now, it's mentioned in the Revelation, throughout all the Revelation, that all of these things happened throughout all the seven trumpets and all these destructions. But it's not mentioned anywhere that after the judgment of the Revelation in the 70 AD, 
that things would, would return to normal, which makes me think and believe that the state of the trumpets, that the trumpets happened, um, that didn't change. And if that's the case, I want to kind of give a little bit emphasis on the fourth trumpet, which is kind of interesting to me, which says the fourth angel sounded his trumpet and the third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and the third of the stars, which makes me believe that that state still hasn't changed. If that's the case, it means that the day got smaller by the revelation of the sun getting smaller, the revelation of the moon getting smaller, which actually points quite most probably to uh, the moon map. And as it's mentioned on the, you know, on the vibes of cosmos and you, most, a lot of you, we kind of, a lot of you now must might probably go to uh, kind of are starting to uh, learn about the moon map. I've learned about the moon map as well. And it's very interesting that uh, even the current state of the world, uh, a part of it is actually filled with the sun. And we don't know what happened with Terra Vista, which is the rest of part of the world. So I'm thinking that the, the, the rest of the part of the world, the state of permanence there, most probably hasn't changed. So it's uninhabitable. So what, I'm, what I've come to believe is that we have currently one third of the world destroyed or the earth destroyed. And then we have, um, we have one, one of the third destroyed and the rest of the two thirds, it's probably, most probably the world which we're actually living in. So he kept the holy city most probably could be in the center of the true uh, magnetic, uh, the true north. And the rest of the world is the, the world as we know it. And this, the fourth trump trumpet, specifically the fourth trumpet, points me to the fact that uh, the world, points me to the fact that we are only actually living to the two-thirds of the world. And only the sun and the moon is to this uh, uh, two-thirds of the world which is the current world we're living and the sun actually the periphery the periphery of the sun actually the sun goes around to a smaller part of the world and the rest of the part of the world is probably destroyed as it was during those those trumpets and the revelation destructions that happened and yeah, this is this is my kind of speculation how I'm going with this, and it's important just because it kind of gives us an insight of what the true map of the current world is. Is it the is it the map, the flat Earth map, as the United Nations makes us believe that they kind of put it in our face to say that oh this is a map, or is it the moon map? Because the moon map could point to a different directional kind of perspective of things and how the map is truly is uh whereas uh the whereas the the united nations let's say world map um which is like a flat earth and we know very well that put it they put that they like to put that uh, to rub it in our face and they put that right there to make us think oh this is how the world is but even that could be a fake one and the true map could actually be that we are in the two-thirds of the world uh, as i see because all these trumpets, and there is also videos online in regards to the first uh, trumpet that says uh, that the earth is scorched. Uh, I, can, I can paste the link um, on the chat 
uh, and I think it's meant from Conspiracy Are Us. Um, I have that link. And he mentions about the scorched earth as well. So again, I see some permanent states. Again, we know that a lot of buildings have been melted during the Millennium Kingdom. Sorry, sorry, during the Revelation. And we see that this building, they actually lasted through the Millennium Kingdom. And we now, at this time and age, we are even able to see them, this melted state. Yeah, thank you, Rob. That's that's exactly that. That's exactly that. Thank you. Um, so that's that's exactly the map. Which how I see it, it's the one third. So what what that makes me believe it's that the other part of the world, as Rob put in the chat group, is actually the uh, the distract the destroyed maybe part of the world. And during in that part of the world, somewhere there, maybe in the center of the earth, we have the holy city. So this is kind of how I see it. Any thoughts, guys? I think that that was uh, an excellent uh, thought process and observation. I like how you're thinking on that a lot. Uh, the only thing I would would add is, or uh, well, there's a few things I can add to it, but the one thing I, I would say is that. Uh, I don't think that we, my perspective on this map is that we don't live in the two thirds, that it's almost more like two thirds is being hidden from us. Um, yes. So it makes me wonder if we are in the third. Um, and I've, I've talked about this a lot that like, what if like the real Holy land, all of that stuff, it's like on the other end and you know, Satan just had to be like, well, I, I have to give them the Bible because I, I, I have to accuse them, so they have to have the truth, and they're going to ask where this Israel is. So, boom, I'm going to plop this down here and create this, right? But um, there is something to be said about uh, – I, I pointed out the urban uh, the urban, Urbano Monte map and how the um, – you, you look at Antarctica on that, and it's, it's this lush – uh, environment, right? And so my theory on a lot of these maps is that they're pre-millennial kingdom. And uh, and again, you know, I'm still I'm sticking with this so I could find evidence otherwise in Enoch and others because you know that the the, uh, the 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 ten prophetic weeks in Enoch literally states that there is an entire week between the destruction of the temple and the ushering of the kingdom. There has to be. It says so. Like so, you know, I I say that there really is several hundred years between. The, the between the uh, 70 AD or and the ushering of the kingdom in which uh, something like the Urbano Monte map um, may have been made. Now let's let's run with this, okay? Let's say that uh, we are in the the third of the Earth, and that the other two third by this point, by time Revelation comes to an end, uh, or at least the bulk of it, uh, has been closed off. And so now they are making maps according to uh, the realm we live in. But the what's interesting about the Urbano Monte map is that again something happened from the time that map was made to now where Antarctica is covered in ice. I wonder if it's like a fallout from just the immense heat and other things that came in and scorched and destroyed the Earth. So there, there's clearly there something happened that the Earth has changed, and and you know I, I don't know if the other part of the Earth is uninhabitable. Obviously, because I'm not there. I mean, for all I know, we're like in the outer darkness. I don't know. I have no clue. Maybe that's like that the 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 surprise ending to this this M Night Shyamalan movie is that we find out we're actually like in the outer darkness or something. I don't know. But um, 
but that, that was some great thinking. I really appreciate that. Uh, that, that gave me something to think about and, and everyone else. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Hey, you know, regarding the, uh, uh, the wall in Antarctica. Um, so I just read a post today on Telegram by um, uh, someone that said that she uh, went, uh, you know, I don't know, in the past few years, she went to um, on a vacation um, to Antarctica and uh, and she said, I realized that they took us only to a very specific uh, point, you know. And But she said, we couldn't see any wall, nothing. And we asked them about it, where is the wall of ice? And they said, oh, it's summer and it melts in the summer. And I thought, really? I don't think so. I mean, such a huge, thick wall melts completely in the summer. So that, you know, when I read it, she wrote a very long post. And I, when I read it, I thought, maybe there is no wall and we are sold another lie. I, I do think that there is a portion of it that there is a wall. Now, we've all seen the video footage of the wall that doesn't, or, uh, you know, photographs or other things. That doesn't mean that it wraps all the way around. And I think that we know so little about, that, you know, that's what I love about the moon map, that it's not a nice wall. It's just a bunch of, you know, continents. You call them islands, but continents. And that's what the, the Urbano Monte map shows, is that there is there are actually like island continents. It's not a wall. So the thing is, is that now I've met multiple people that have gone to Antarctica. Uh, I've I've used to be friends with, um, you know, won't speak to me now because of the whole flat Earth thing and other things. But she spent like, uh, I don't know, six months of her life in Antarctica. For her, that was proof that the Earth was a globe because she's been to Antarctica and that proves it. And in my opinion, it's like, uh, that's like uh, someone plopping you down on Venice Beach in Los Angeles. And you have proof that New York City, 3,000 miles away, doesn't exist because you went to Los Angeles. Like, it doesn't prove anything. It just proves that you went to a beach in a place they call Antarctica. That's all it proves. Um, so, yeah, there is so much that we do not understand about Antarctica. I don't think anyone in this room, to my knowledge, has been there. I have not been there. Uh, I'm not a government employee or working for the government or contracted by them. So I'm not going to have a chance of going there. I don't know who this person is, you know, that went to vacation there. That's, uh, that's interesting. I know that, you know, very elite, rich, wealthy people have gone on some sort of trek adventure in Antarctica, but that's a very rare um, thing to have happen. Um, but anyways, yeah. Well, the biggest desert in the world is Antarctica, they say. Yeah. Josh, I think, I think, in, I think in regards to that, Noel, I think in uh, the fact for the Antarctica and when you, when, you, when you go there, especially on the north part, I think what is now called, uh, what is now called, um, I think, um, when you go to the, uh, you have the, you know, the Bermuda Triangle, and there are so many, so much stories that they say that you know, if you go to the Bermuda Triangle, you can actually get lost. Well, if you look at the current map, this doesn't make any sense because you would normally go to Africa or or Spain, or you would actually hit the land of the, you know, of the rest of the Europe or or, or Africa. But if you look at the at the moon map then it makes sense why you would actually get lost because you're actually going a lot north 
where it's only C, and you can actually get, get really lost there because you, you, it's properly unnavigable in a sense because you will only find C, and that's why they say that, you know, uh, you will not go there. And actually, this guy released even the ship, um, uh, the ship um, travels uh, through the moon map, which actually there are straight lines and make a lot of, uh, well, a lot of sense. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Yeah, and I, I've looked at that as well on the moon map, and there is a lot, a lot of water there, and it makes total sense why, uh, like when I fly to Europe or you know over there, it's like I'm going, I'm going way up north, and of course you know you're going in a straight line, but it's like you got to arch way up north and back down to go to Europe, and it's like because that's where it's positioned, and there's. There's a lot of water to get lost on out there. I, I fully agree with that. Yeah. The land has shifted, or at least the water has, has, um, um, it's different. Like, like one of the things of that moon map, that was a picture from before is what is proposed. So how right. um, exact it is today, we don't know. Well, or it, or it could be, it could be Mike that what is shown on on Urbano Monte could actually be the actual state of how the world was, and the moon map is the current one, because there are some things which actually make sense in the moon map uh, in regards to the Bermuda Triangles and also uh, the flight paths, but if you and what happened is is because. Um, Satan has at his disposition some previous maps which actually made sense like the Urbano Monte maybe he's using that those previous maps as the current map in order to kind of create another lie on top of another lie which is the globe earth good stuff yes. interesting well guys obviously all, all of this is speculation you know it's just uh, you know just uh, just trying to just going through the the thought motions here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good stuff to think about. It is. It's a lot of good stuff to think about. And I, I think we have all realized, I think everyone in this room has realized that that the globe, the spinning, wobbling globe Earth model through, you know, the Kabbalah vacuum of space is a lie. And, and we know that's a lie. But we don't have a complete picture. And we know that there is our lies within lies within lies. And you have to keep, you know, sorting through the information. Sometimes you hit a wall. Sometimes uh, you realize that something you thought was true is now no longer true. Um, but it's, it's like there are so many layers to this, you know, that it, it's it's like getting through a, a you know, a, a labyrinth. But... You know, one thing we know is that they're lying to us about the official narrative, and um, that's you know, a hundred percent what I am convinced of. And of course, you know, I'm hundred percent convinced that scripture is true as well. Um, so, with that, uh, I'm going to go ahead and close shop for the night. There was some, you know, th thank you, Andy, for for sharing. There was some incredible insight information. Thank you, everyone else. Thank you. Uh, Roni, as always, for your insight in Hebrew. And uh, we'll do this again next week. Of course, next Thursday as well. I'll be on Zin Garcia's show. And that should be uh, an event to remember. 
hopefully I know Zen's really looking forward to it. So, and uh, we've already taken a phone call. So I've uh, given him most of my talking points just so I, he doesn't feel like I'm just, you know, slapping him with something on the, on the spot. But anyways, I really appreciate this. Thank you, Rob and Michael for coming on and um, week after week and you guys can continue talking, but for, for now I'm signing off for the night. Shabbat Shalom one last time and see you guys around.